Let us pray. Father God, as we come before this word this morning, we pray that you might bless us through the power of your spirit to see it afresh, to see it anew, to see your truth, to see your grandeur, to see your glory, to see how you are Lord over all, Lord of all, King of kings and Lord of lords. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We began this week with the very same verse we ended last week with. When we hear of the term holocaust, because we are products of our time, we we tend to think of Hitler, we tend to think of the rise of Nazism, we tend to think of that attack on the Jewish people, on the Hebrew people, and even those who stood alongside of them, like we talked about last week with the the Ten Bloom family. But this is the first holocaust of Jewish history that, that we have just read about and that we are entering into. And so long before Hitler ever had... Uh, the demonic idea of kind of racial purity and the racial elitism of the, of the people he ruled over, this pharaoh was inspired 3,500 years earlier, roughly, maybe a, a few more, um, to do something similar. He saw in this nation, in this, um, uh, the fruitfulness of God's people, And he worried that they might overtake his people, overtake his nation. And so he wanted to cull the the Hebrew people. Not so much that he entirely exterminated his slave labor force, this labor force that he enslaved, but so that there would be no threat of uprising. And so that's where we enter our story today. And, and how to do that is he follows the ancient pattern, and this was a very common pattern, of you remove the men of the society, and, and then you just have the women left, in one sense. And yet there's a word of caution I want to give to you. Because we know this story, we know who this baby is, we know who he will become, and even today... This story defines the Jewish people. This is their redemption story of redemption story. This is uh, the Old Testament salvation story um, of all salvation stories within the Old Testament. And so we immediately go, oh, we know who this baby is. And we rush to kind of look at the completed reality of Moses to come. And I don't want you to do that. I actually want you to have a little bit of patience. So to illustrate what I mean by this, look behind me. What do we have here? We have a piece of stained glass. And the stained glass depicts the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there was a time, and there was a moment, in which these were just pieces of glass. You would have sooner thought maybe they were a part of a bottle. Maybe they were a part of a vase. And, and, and you would have never known that these pieces of glass were set apart ultimately for use in a church. They just would have almost looked like trash. Something to discard. 
Don't rush to the end of the Exodus story and miss the fact that there are pieces here that we should just kind of consider before we put them into the whole. And why is that important in this passage? It's important in this passage because here we find a Hebrew people, they were enslaved. Here we find a Hebrew people and they were being exterminated. The baby boys were being exterminated and killed and murdered. And you can just think of the powerful prayer reality, the powerful reality and existential threat that that Pharaoh is and how the people must have been passionately praying for this to come to an end, for this to stop, for God to intervene. And yet, do you know how long it takes for this baby to eventually go to the point where he as a man goes before Pharaoh and on behalf of God says, let my people go? It takes 80 years. Bob Lomas, you're over 80. Who else is, you know, I, okay, I, won't, I, won't, I won't call out everybody over 80. That's a bad idea. Bad idea. Should have stuck to the notes. Bad idea. Shame on Pastor Kevin. You know what's going on 80 years ago to today? 80 years ago to today. Hitler and Stalin were fighting over Stalingrad. That was happening 80 years ago today. Hitler wanted the city with Stalin's namesake. Stalin wanted to keep the city with his namesake. And both of them were just throwing bodies at the city. And actually, to literally to the day, last night, 80 years ago, Russian forces finally took back the airport in Stalingrad. They took control of it. Today, 80 years ago, the U.S. decided it wanted to invade Sicily. And California experienced over 26 inches of rain, rain in a 24-hour period. It's record. And nobody mentioned global warming. It's amazing. But that all happened 80 years ago today. Hitler was breathing air on God's green earth more recently than this baby, than the time it will take for this baby to finally approach Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And so think about how many decades, how much time passed, and the Hebrews would have been people of God who said, God's forgotten about us. God's not doing anything to save us. God's not doing anything to redeem us. And, and here yet, back, metaphorically speaking, at the time of Stalingrad, he's already set in motion of something that is going to be his grandest redemption story in the entire Old Testament. And why we need to know this and why we need to appreciate this in our modern day is we're Americans, which means we're basically the most impatient people that have ever graced the planet. We are the people of fast food restaurants and Twitter and, and DVRs and, and we don't listen to the radio anymore because you can't skip over the commercials and, and that is who we are. We are an impatient people. We are, and, and that kind of culture, it infects the church and we as a church, we become impatient. You know, people have been sitting around for this period of time or this period of time. God's not seemingly doing anything. And, 
And we worship a God who sometimes, in his mightiest works, he's working. But for the people for 80 years, they would have said, I don't see any fruit of this. I don't see where this is going. I don't see where this is headed. We're, we're still enslaved. Again, the, the, the killing of the babies was for a proportioned time in order to thin the people. But they would have felt utterly hopeless. And so we need to kind of just deal with that piece, that piece of glass. We don't need to rush to the end really quickly and go, oh, we know this Moses story. You think about how many times they would have felt, oh, these, these prayers are not being answered. Maybe some of you here today are saying, you know, I'd be a believer in God or I'd, I'd come to God or I'd get so frustrated with God because he just, he never seems to be at work. Maybe if God would do something incredible for me like he did for Moses and his family and the Hebrews in the Old Testament, maybe then I would, I would really have a, a lively faith. And, and I remind you, it was 80 years. took 80 years for God to reveal the one baby to whom God ordained to save and for that one baby to ultimately save a great multitude. So how many teardrops of sorrow, how many moments of pain were sustained by the Hebrews? How many funerals, how many forms of abuse were they, did they endure? We need to be comfortable with the fact that God might not answer all our prayers in our lifetime. And yet God answers prayer. Next thing we need to understand as we continue to get our feet wet here in Exodus is that when God makes war on a nation, which he is most certainly doing to the Egyptians in this book, he loves to take a culture's idols, a culture's blind spots, the favorite mythologies of that society uh, in rebellion to him, and he uses those very things to destroy their culture. You're going to see this all throughout the Exodus narrative starting today. I could go off on a tangent on American idols, but I will spare you because it would take far too long. I'll refrain from the temptation in this sermon, but I'll just say this. I don't think when our founders thought of liberty and freedom, they were picturing an older man dressed up in women's clothing reading to four-year-olds in a library as an expression of liberty and freedom. That would have been abhorrent to them. But I digress. God will use the cultural idols in order to make war on a society that no longer respects or cares about him. That's what we'll find in Exodus. And so all throughout Exodus, God will destroy, to borrow a, a word from that, that uh, song and sound of music, a few of their favorite things. God will make an utter mockery of it all. The first example is, and we talked about this last week, the Nile to the Egyptians, it was what? It was a pagan god of theirs. It was a source of their vitality, their strength. 
And, and it was very easy for the Egyptian people to fall in line to be okay with killing the Hebrew children because, first off, their society already had a very much, if it's not Egyptian, it's an outsider, we distrust it, we don't believe it, but they felt like they were handing over the baby to their God, and their God would do the judgment. Their God of the Nile, one of their many pagan gods, he would do the judgment, and it would ultimately be on his shoulders to decide if this Hebrew baby lived or died. That's what their society told them. This was not a murder. It's what society has deemed okay, and so there you go. Go for it. Well, God will use this Nile, this source of prosperity, to uphold the one in whom will help bring down its idols in Moses. He will use that which it upholds as a part of its strength in order to confound it in weakness. There are also less noticed details. So all throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus, Pharaoh is making decrees. Pharaoh is asserting his authority. And throughout it all, those who rise up against him and to most readily make war against him are not the men of the society, but they're actually the women. The Hebrew midwives, two Hebrew midwives rise up. Uh, Moses' mother will rise up. Uh, Moses' sister will be a part of this. The handmaidens of Pharaoh's Daughter will be a part of this, and Pharaoh's daughter herself, the princess, will be a part of undermining the ultimate office of Pharaoh that believed it had godlike powers. This specific Pharaoh, because it was such a long period of time for Moses to assert himself, he likely lived and died thinking, Remember that Hebrew culling policy I had? A great many years ago, how successful that was. All the while, God just needed one. One baby guarded by women in order to eventually bring down the entire Hebrew slave operation of the line of pharaohs. And then we find out in verses 1 and 2, this baby is from the tribe of Levi. Now we know Levi becomes the Levitical priest, but at this point in time, we want to actually appreciate the context of the original readers. Who was Levi? Levi was the third born of Jacob, who became Israel. He was the third born, and both he and Simeon preemptively lashed back and made war against the people God said, not yet, not frankly until after this exodus, after they had violated their sister. Basically, they got mad about how the injustice of it all, the injustice of what happened to the household of Israel, and they, both Levi and Simeon struck back with the sword in order to, to beat back those who would violate their family. And so when an ancient Hebrew reader is reading that a Levite child is being born here, that he is uh, coming to, to be, they would be thinking, oh, a warrior. Somebody who's going to fight back, who's going who's to make war against this injustice that has befallen the people. 
And the specific names of the parents are not important yet. We will learn them in chapter 6, verse 20. But right now, all we need to know is that the tribe of Levi, in whom the book of Genesis were known for zealously protecting the family name of Israel, a new baby has been born from this line. And after this woman gives birth to this child, she successfully pulls off hiding the baby for three months. Why only three months? Why can't it go longer? Abby's going to soon learn this. It's because baby crying for the first three months is sort of like, eh, 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 eh. You keep, a, you keep a baby quiet. But then those lungs develop. You know, they can get loud. And, they get, and now you no longer need that little baby monitor. You can just put that away. Um, and, and the baby has a larger th- full-throated scream. And yet, when she beholds this baby, why she, in part, there's a few things we need to appreciate. Why, in part, she decides to keep this baby and to protect this baby and to put herself at great risk of this baby. And if you think this is just a natural mother's instinct, one thing we don't know yet, but uh, through the text, but we will ultimately know, is Moses is the third born in his own family. He's got an older brother and he's got a sister. Aaron and Miriam. And I would have to guess that a Pharaoh so diabolical as this one would have been a a threat to lash out on a family that would try to defy his orders, so much so that it might not be out of question that they could she could be putting the whole household at risk. And yet there is something in the Hebrew there, in that verse, as she first beholds the baby that I, I, I don't like how the ESV translates it. I think it says fine. But it's actually the Hebrew word tov. Tov. You know the Hebrew word tov. God said, let there be light. And he saw the light and it was tov. What is it? It's good. In the first chapter of Genesis, there are seven tovs. Good, good. Good, good. Moses is picking that word and putting it right here. It's, it's very uniquely there. It's almost like a new creation kind of word. There's, there's something to this goodness. She sees something in this child that she... If I, my best guess is, it, is she, she sees something that's remarkably set apart for this child in the hands of God. And so she decides she has to save this child. It's not that God has a booming voice and says, you know, with no monitor needed, save the baby. God doesn't do that. But she decides at great risk to her family uh, to hide the baby for three months. And then after three months, she can't do anything more. And so she builds an ark. It would have been a basket no bigger than the basket in the back there that holds the uh, headphones, probably. It would have probably had a lid, and it was made waterproof. And she makes not a big ark like Noah did, though it is the same word in the Hebrew. She makes a small ark, a small strategic ark. And she puts the baby in the ark and then sets the baby in reeds so that hopefully the reeds would keep the basket there, but also the reeds themselves were a a form of protection. And safety. 
and more on that in a moment. Let me catch up to my notes and see if I'm there yet. So the Nile River is a river that, think about this, I, th I always think about this when I go down to Florida. What do you think about when you're close to bodies of water in Florida? You can think of gators, right? Hey, you think of gators. Uh, you think of gators. Here in the Nile, Nile has the crocodile. 16-foot crocodiles. This was very common. It's only in our modern age that you could easily approach the, the Nile without fear. And so this baby was placed in reeds, but also when people wanted to use the Nile in Egypt, they didn't go to like the big bank head of a beachfront, but they actually would enter through the reeds. So her putting the baby there was in one sense a wise decision. It was something that would have been trafficked and that people would have walked to. But think of how terrible the situation has gotten for Israel, how terrible it has gotten for the Hebrews, where a mother's best hope of saving her child is by abandoning that child. That's where she is. And the mother leaves, and the daughter remains at a distance in order what might be uh, come for her infant brother. And what happens is the daughter of the murderous Pharaoh, his literal little princess, goes down to the river to bathe. And, and so she's picking, and she finds a spot with a lot of reeds because she would have wanted to protect herself, to be safe, to not be too exposed. And so then we have in verse 5 and 6 two great ironies of God. First, remember, this is Pharaoh's daughter. She believes as she goes to the Nile that denial is a what? It's a God. She's a pagan. It's a God. So she now finds this baby in, a, in an ark, this baby that is sustained in the reeds of the river, and it's quite possible she felt maybe the Nile God, the pagan God, would have called her to save this baby. So that's the first irony. The second irony is an important one to understand about the entire book of Exodus, but really the entire Bible. And it goes back to those cultural idols once again. When God makes war against a, a nation that has gone godless and is utterly opposed to him, he attacks their favorite idols. He attacks their favorite stories. Now, the Pharaoh, the position of Pharaoh had an origin story. They have their own George Washington-esque kind of story, but their story is derived from the man or once named Horus. And Horus was this uh, figure who has similarities and parallels to Moses and Moses' story. Horus was a figure who was supposedly the first pharaoh. And yet uh, his brother, in his instance, was trying to kill him. And his mother basically protected him through uh, the Nile itself and and eventually, Horus rises to the position of Pharaoh. And Horus is, is a god. And so it means that all the pharaohs who follow Horus are gods after him. There are intentional similarities in Moses' story and in Horus' story. 
And I remember finding these kinds of things. There's these things, by the way, in the Gospels. If you read the Prophets, the Psalms, there are moments where God mocks the false gods of the world, and he, he basically has a better story to give. He basically steals their story and makes it better. And so this was the story of the age. This was the nation of more power than any other nation. And there, the great Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the world. And all throughout the world, people would tell of this day and age the story of Horus. And how Horus was the, the original descendant of the Pharaohs. And now, 3,500 years later, here in Waxhaw, PA, on the other side of the world... Here we are, and I would guess most of you came in this room not knowing Horace's story, but you know a story that has similarity to it because God stole that story from the pharaohs, and he made a better story. But the story wasn't to glorify the name of Moses, but it was actually to show the God who was at work and at war with those who were his enemy. And so that's how God works. Whether it's through his prophets Elijah, whether it's through Christ, Apostle Paul has moments like this, his psalm writers, this is how God works. He attacks the idols. And so this is all coming to pass. And, and at the moment of verse 6, actually, in the Hebrew, you can see the fact that this, what would become Moses' adopted mother, it follows and it patterns she sees the, some of the same qualities that this baby needs to be taken and protected, just like Moses' mother had in verse 2. And so the sister at this point of Moses, of this baby boy, she sees a moment of opportunity like a good Hebrew and emphatically declares, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? Notice she says it twice, the Hebrew version of an exclamation point. And the reason why she would ask that is, of course, Egypt was a culture that would not want to have its midwives uh, sustaining Hebrew children. And so Pharaoh's daughter likes this idea, and she orders this young girl to go and find a Hebrew wet nurse for her. And of course, she selects her mother. And now the power of Pharaoh's name is uniquely behind and protecting this one baby. His daughter declares, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. This princess has enough legal protection, one of the few women in all of Egypt with such legal protection, to defy a command of Pharaoh to keep a Hebrew alive. And not only that, but the baby's mother is even given wages for carrying out her natural task and duty. It also seemingly hints at the fact that eventually the Egyptians will give their plunder to the Hebrews. Or the, the Hebrews will later plunder them, is better said. And then in the final verse, verse 10, the child has grown older. By historic practices at this time, it could have been up to three years. It was actually common... Uh, it might be hard for us to believe to wait even several years to name a child uh, because there was a high mortality rate. And so it became a popular practice. And this adopted mother, she has one final dose of irony to it. 
We think of Moses in our own day as a strong Hebrew name. It's not. It's actually an Egyptian name. She names him Moses because she drew him out of the water. And in this one named, drawn out of the water, God would use him in order to show himself as father over the Hebrew people. In which he will draw out his people, draw them out of Egypt through the waters, through their own reed sea, through their own body of water reeds. And as they walk through that water and they get to the other side, they will see the power of Pharaoh utterly crushed. And yet there's still some lingering questions in the here and now. The reader does not yet know. Will Moses be an Egyptian first or will he be a Hebrew first? Will he be a son of Levi parents first or will he be a son of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's daughter first? The answer won't come right away. It will take a lifetime to unravel. And yet God's hand is seen working all through chapter 2, if, even if unnamed. And for eight decades, it would have likely looked like this little story of a single Hebrew boy being saved doesn't really matter in the end. What would Moses ever do to help us? And yet, we've seen the stained glass. We've seen the fuller picture. God has used Pharaoh's blind spots in order to begin to undo him. And the thing is, Moses isn't the primary piece of glass. He isn't even the focal point. He's just a small part of God's larger story. God's larger story is this, that he would send a son who would need to suffer and to die for the greatest slavery of all, the slavery that we have to our sins, that he would be the sacrificial lamb of sacrificial lamb, that he would be the one rejected and scorned, that he would be the one cast into the waters of judgment, and yet it would all be done for our sake and for our salvation. And so the story of Moses, the story of this baby, isn't even so much to even point at the full picture of the whole story of Exodus, but the fullness of this story. What it really means is, it is a foretaste and a foreshadowing of the fact that God so loved the world that he cast his son out into it, even knowing that death would be the end of his mortal life so that you and I might find life in him. That is the full piece of the picture of stained glass. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the fact that in Moses we can see glimpses of how you answer prayer. And in seeing how you answer prayer, Lord, we need a greater patience in our life. We need a greater ability to understand you are the eternal God. And when we bring prayer to you, even if we don't recognize and don't see the fruits of our, our prayers being answered, even if in our entirety of our whole lives, you're at work, Lord. You're at work in amazing ways. You continue to build a people unto yourself, to redeem people, to pull them out of the world, to show them a better way. 
Give us courage, Lord. Let us call people unto your name. Let us share the light of Christ. Let us share the greatest redemption of all, the freedom from the slavery of sin. And help us to grow in greater faithfulness to you, to learn what that costs, what that means. Let us desire to be more fruitful in how we abide in you. Let us do all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment to quietly and privately confess our sins before the Lord.